And good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Smith Jr. and welcome to another edition of the Dr. James Show and another edition of what is going to be or what promises to be another compelling episode. Just wanted to let you know that um, as always, as we're going through the program, please feel free to put your, your thoughts in the chat room, your questions in the chat room. I have a feeling that you're gonna have plenty today. And as a reminder, we are sponsored by the Pyramid Club of Philadelphia. Wow. As individuals, we from time to time compare our lives to other people's lives. Sometimes we think the grass is always greener on the other side and we all know that the grass is greener where it's watered most. But today, wow, today life is relative. We, we, we say we have it hard, we, we, it's challenging, the pandemic. But do we really, really understand the blessing we have to be free? and to live. Our guest today, Shalana McFarlane, what a story, what a story. Rather than me bringing her out initially to share who she is, where she's from, what's been happening in her life, we're gonna show you a brief clip, video clip, and let her tell you via the video clip. So let's, let's take a look. My name is Shalana McFarland. I'm 52 years old. I was raised in the small town of Valdosta, Georgia. I have one daughter who is a sophomore in college. I was an attorney in Atlanta prior to my incarceration. And in 2005, I was convicted of mortgage fraud and I was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison as a first-time nonviolent offender. Wow, 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 wow. Can't wait to, uh, can't wait to peel back that onion. Ladies and gentlemen, let's meet Shalana McFarland. Shalana, welcome to the Dr. James Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me today. <laughs> no problem, yes. I'm gonna go deeper and ask you again. How are you considering everything you've experienced, considering the last year right now at home? How are you? I am extremely grateful and blessed and excited about life and being with my family. And I'm treasuring every moment of it. Speaking of treasuring, Take us back to June the 9th, 2020. What was that like? What was that day like? June 9th was and is still surreal uh, for those that are listening. I was informed in the first week of April that because of my medical conditions, um, I had four conditions that were listed as uh, CDC factors for having um, a bad to terminal outcome if I were to contract COVID. So the federal prison system decided that if people were met certain criteria, meaning they had served 
50% of their time, they had a good institutional record. They weren't a threat or to public safety that they could be transferred to home confinement because there is no ability to social distance um, in prison. Right. So I was called to the office and told that your name's on the list of people that are going to be considered for release. Well, I had served 15 years of a 30 year sentence Ooh. and I'd heard many times before, oh, this legislation is happening or they're going to do this or parole is coming back. Because for those people that don't know, there is no parole in the federal system. So if you're giving a sentence, you're going to serve 85% of that sentence and then you can earn good time for the other 15%. But my release date was not going to be until 2031. So they called me in and I said, okay, well, you know, thank you for telling me. And I went back and I, and people were on the phones calling their families and stuff. And I decided to wait because my family had, they've been on the roller coaster with me so many times as mm. we appealed my case, uh, as we filed different things in court, each new attorney, each new retainer paid, you know, sure. there was hope that came with it. And then at the end of the day, nothing happened. So I didn't want them to go through that with me. So and I waited. And then they had how, me. How, how, how did you feel during that time? Were you optimistic? Were you pessimistic? Were you, let's just see what happens? I just took a wait and see posture uh, initially. You know, a little skeptical uh, because they didn't have any information. You know, it, it was like, I was like, okay, well, if it happens, it happens. But I went to my room and I prayed and I, and I said, Lord, if this is real, if this is you, then I know this is going to happen. So please, you know, just order my steps or whatever I'm Ooh. supposed to. Do. And maybe about a week later, I got called in and they actually had paperwork and they said, OK, Miss McFarland, sign here, sign here. We're going to process you. It has to go through all these different layers of bureaucracy. And uh, and then we'll let you know. So I had a sign and you need anything else. And, you know, what what could possibly what else could I need? And they said, well, you know, we'll need a, a release residence for you. We'll need, they'll have to have a home phone. They'll have to do this, that and the other. So at that point, I got on the phone and called my family and said, hey, listen, I just signed some papers. I think this is real. So I need you all to be praying and fasting about this. And, sure. you know, we'll see. So this was in April. Mid-May, some people started to go home, but I was in the first group that signed and, but I, nobody called me. So I'm like, well, maybe they think I have too much time left and they're not mm. going to, you know, that doubt starts to, to creep in. And I just started rebuking it. And I said, you know what, God, I put this in your hands and I'm not going to pick it back up now. So if you, I know you got it. So I'm going to ride with whatever you say. If you mean for me to stay here, then I'll stay. And if you mean for me to go, then I'm going to run out of here. And, <laughs> and do the happy dance while you're running, right? <laughs> right. And then my best friend, uh, she had also signed the same day that I did. And she got her date of May 26th. And uh, she had already done 12 years. And so we were jumping around and screaming and yelling and crying. And I was so excited for her. And people said to me, I don't understand how you could be so happy when you don't have your date yet. And I said, me not having a date has nothing to do with me being able to be happy for her. Right. She's going home to her kids. 
And they just looked at me and they didn't understand. Yeah, but I would be mad because, you know, you've done longer. And I said, sweetheart, favor is not fair. Favor is on her life right now. I said, mine is coming. Right. And uh, and so we celebrated for her. And then we started, you know, when you you accumulate a lot of things and then you start you start uh, giving things away yeah. and uh, you go from there. And then she was giving everything away. And then she she finally came the day before she left. And she said, you know, I'm really I don't want to leave you here. And I said, you know, you just got to go ahead. It's all right. But two days before she left, I got my date and I was leaving on June the 9th. So that morning I was up early. I you know, had my box packed. You know, I was ready. I didn't have to be there until 830. I think I was ready at like 615. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and you're getting and you're getting ready. What role did Sephiria Johnson play in your life in getting ready? Oh, Sephiria. OK, Sephiria. I'm sorry, Sephiria. She just come in to the system mm-hmm. and she, I don't know, I just took her under my wing, but anyway, she carried my boxes down for me that day and she was 36 and she had two little boys who her aunt would bring her little boys, just, they would trail my parents down sometimes and we would all sit together at visitation and so I knew her sons and so I told her, I said, I'll, you know, when I go get settled I'll try to see your boys and she carried my box down for me and uh, I told her I said well I'll see you when you get home because she mm. she had um, a six-year sentence for tax fraud and uh, it was just you know it was hard to leave her but you know I told her it's okay I'll see you soon sure sure I didn't know that that would be the last time I would see her but that's we'll cover that in a little bit but uh, she, you know, I hugged everybody and I went through the door into receiving a discharge and you have to do all this paperwork and they have to fingerprint you and do a lot of different things. And the entire time I'm thinking, okay, is this real? Is this real? Are they, are they going to come and tell me uh, there was a mistake? You're not going to be able to leave because that had happened like a week or so before the girl was actually in the car with her family and they went out and got her and told her there was a mistake in the paperwork and she had to come back in so I was just Mm. like and I was just praying the entire time and so I remember the uh camp administrator he looked at me says did you say something I said no I wasn't talking to you and he says well there's nobody else here and I said I know I'm talking to God he's always here and he just kind of looked at me funny but hey I, I get by how I get by and that's how I get by and so I, uh, my counselor came down and he said, what kind of car is your family driving? And I said, they'll be in a gray Honda Accord. And he looks, he says, oh, I see it out there. And wow. my heart just wow. dropped. Wow. And I said, this is real. And yeah. I, they finally said, okay, McFarland, you're, you're done. You can, you can head out. And my counselor grabbed my box to carry it for me and mm-hmm. um he walked out first and I walked out behind him and then my daughter was standing there and we just took off running and wow. we just hugged each other and because she was only four years old when I left and now she's 20 and that was like one of the most amazing days of my life and then I saw my parents standing there and they were crying Mm. And my dad is not an emotional person, but he had tears in his eyes that day. And we all just hugged. Tears. And then I turned oh. to 
wave goodbye to all of the sisters that I made that kept me during my 15 years of incarceration. And uh, it was bittersweet because you, mm. you know, you're glad to go, but you, it, it hurts that you're leaving so many good people behind. I think you and call so, it survivor remorse, right? Right. It's survivor's remorse because I made it out and so many others, even those with medical conditions did not, including my friend, Sephiria who in August died at the age of 36 from COVID because they didn't process her paperwork in time. And uh, that, was, that, was a hard, that was a hard blow. And I've lost two other friends that were there with me to COVID that should have been processed out, that met all the criteria. But the, the wheels of the bureaucracy of the Bureau of Prisons turned very slow. Well, here's the the million dollar question. I'm sure folks want to know what happened. What happened? Can you share that story with us? How did you wind up incarcerated for 15 years of a 30 year sentence? I had a closing practice in. I started it in 1999. Uh, prior to that, I practiced uh, criminal law, criminal defense law. And uh, when I became pregnant with my daughter, it was uh, too hard on my body. So someone said, well, you need to look at transactional work. And so I decided, well, okay, I don't know what that is exactly, but I just graduated from law school in 96. So I'm still very new, very green, I'm very enthusiastic as I am about all things that I go after in life. And so I had a friend uh, who was a paralegal who worked for a closing firm. And she said, you know what, hire me and I'll come show you how to do everything and we'll figure it out. So that's what we did. And uh, long story short, I closed loans that were called flips where the properties are being bought and sold in the same day or in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. The loans were table funded, which means that there's a, company that is the bank and right. they write the check at closing and then they in turn do an assignment and what they would do at that point was to bundle these loans into these packages that ended up being part of the mortgage crash that happened in 2007 mm -hmm. where you heard all about the subprime mortgages and the bundling and all of that sure um there were some issues regarding the appraisals where the properties were overinflated. Uh, there was some there's some issues with the way that people qualify for the loans, but all of that had nothing to do with me or my office. As far as my office went, all the loans were paid off. Uh, you know, there wasn't any money missing or anything like that. But some of the people in my office, uh, they were involved in the fraud in that they were altering documents and different things. And I didn't know. And ultimately, when I went to trial, they testified. One of them said, well, we didn't tell Shalana because we didn't want Shalana to know because she wouldn't have gone along with it. And uh, but I take responsibility for it because they were my employees and I should have kept a closer look or I should have learned more about the industry before I just jumped in. But you don't know. They call it the practice of law for a reason. And that's because law school teaches you theory, but it teaches you absolutely nothing about how to run a practice. And I made mistakes. But did I deliberately sit down and conspire 
to defraud uh, HUD or any of the uh, government agencies? No. And uh, when I was ultimately indicted, which was in 2004, I was just flabbergasted. I mean, here was a person that never had detention, never had a speeding ticket. And now I'm looking at this, this indictment that says the United States of America versus me. Wow. And I I remember looking at it and turning to my mom and saying, mama, the whole country. Mm. Mm. And that was so sobering. And when I read through it, all the things that I was accused of, I was just Still, still, I look at it and I, I just, I'm amazed at the things that they accused me of. And they started calling me the queen of mortgage fraud, wow. which was a tremendous moniker when I just graduated from law school in 1996. So I ascended to the throne pretty quickly. But what I was, was a victim uh, of a mortgage fraud ring because they preyed upon young attorneys. And they all knew each other before they came to my office. And then after my office was closed, they went to another attorney and did the same thing. So this was a pattern, but that didn't fit into the government's narrative because here I am, young, up and coming attorney, well-known in the community. Uh, I made better headlines. And, mm-hmm. the, and that is what happened. They turned my case, it was a complete circus. It made and, a lot of headlines. I, I do my research. I saw a lot of the information. Shalane, before I ask you the next question, because I want to go deeper with this, there is a question in the chat room. It says, what would you say to those who are facing major challenges with seemingly no light coming soon? So again, what would you say to those who are facing major challenges with seemingly no light coming soon? Any advice? I would tell them to keep staring straight ahead that the light will eventually come. And if your eyes are closed, you won't see it. So you have to figure out a way to get through it. And what I find the easiest way to do it is to get over yourself, because no matter how bad things are in your life, there's always someone that's doing worse. And if you dedicate your time and effort to positive things, to bettering yourself, to helping others, you'll be able to see the light and, and it, it will come. And the thing about it is that we tend to be destination driven instead of understanding that your quality of life is as you are. It's, it's your state of mind at this moment. Yeah. And it's not something that's going to happen. It is what it is. And so you have to make that choice that like I did when I was inside, God, I don't believe you want me to be miserable and I don't believe you want me to suffer and you set me aside for a reason. And so I'm going to figure out what that reason is while I'm here. And in the meantime, I'm going to try to be your light to other people. And people used to say, I don't understand how you could have so much peace about yourself and you got this long sentence and you might actually die in here. And I said, well, you know what? First of all, my salvation is assured. And I know that if I die, I know where I'm going. And in the meantime, I'm just going to keep living. And what's going on with you? You know, why are you so angry? Who made you mad today? Well, well, let's go fix it. Let's just try to find out what's going on. And, you know, I found out from a lot of the 
the girls, you know, they have a lot of hurt and, you know, people don't allow themselves to heal. And so each of us has our own journey, but I would just tell people facing major challenges is that you just have to keep looking forward. And sometimes you don't know what the next week is going to bring the next day. And, you know, there are times that you have to break it down to, okay, I just got to get through this next hour, or I just got to get through this next minute because it can weigh on you. Trina, was that, was that always your MO or is that something you developed while you were incarcerated? No, that was not always my MO. I, prior to my uh, incarceration, I was caught up like everyone else in what I, you know, people call the rat race or trying to keep up with the Joneses and living other people's expectations of what my life should be. And that is a hard, uh, that is a hard, those are hard shoes to fill because they're not yours. And so you have to learn what it is that you want for yourself because each of us has a mission. Each of us has a purpose for being here. And you just have to find out what that is. And when you do, I promise you, your life will become mm -hmm. so amazing. Mm -hmm. Take us back to that moment when you knew that this was real, that your life was about to be different for the foreseeable future. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember walking away to a, your new home? I mean, I wouldn't even call it a home, but walking away, you were not gonna be practicing anymore, that life was gonna be different. I think going into my trial, I was delusional, honestly. Um, I look at it and I it, everything was, was it, all, it was almost like it was hazy. I was going through the motions, but I wasn't functioning. And uh, at that point, I was uh, had been given medication by a doctor uh, to help me with my nerves and mm. my depression. And um, and all it did was just numb me. And uh, I, I went through, and you know, I, I was going through the motions, and. Uh, it didn't help, you know, I, I, I was still hurting and I was still afraid and I was, I was scared. And, and then the people that were my friends and even some family members and uh, my husband, uh, you know, you expect support from them and you, you just don't get it. What you get is, I can't believe this happened or, you know, you should have known better. And none of that helps. I mean, it is what it is. We're here now. Let you know. I, I need some support. What, what are we going to do moving right, forward? Right. And as I went through the trial, um, it was horrible. My uh, attorney was very inexperienced and new and inept, and uh, he did a very bad job. Um, he's not a bad man, and I'll, and I'll say that um, he's a very kind man, and a, uh, he tried, but he just did not have the skills that were, were needed, and we're battling the government, and they have a whole table of people and paralegals and all these others, and it's just me and him and a friend of mine that came along to help, and uh, it was overwhelming, and then when my 
on the day that the jury came back, I still was hoping, you know, because I prayed and I fasted, and, sure. you know, and I was like, God, you know, I read every scripture about deliverance that, you know, 10 times a day. And uh, I got, you know, on every prayer list, uh, you know, had family members calling their churches asking for prayer for me. And I wanted God to j- deliver me out of the situation. Mm-hmm. But what I discovered is that sometimes God won't take you out of a situation. He'll take you through a situation. Mm. And uh, and it's a growth period and it's uncomfortable and it's painful and it hurts. But you come out the better, uh, the better person and your scars Absolutely. are beautiful at the end. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so that day when the jury came back and they say, you know, we find you guilty and um I just was stunned and I heard my mother cry out in the courtroom and I heard tears and crying and wailing and my knees just gave out and I sat down only to be pulled right back up by the marshals who turned me around and put handcuffs on me. And I looked Mm -hmm. at my lawyer and I said, wait, I got to go now. And he, and he said, yeah, the judge decided that he's not going to let you self surrender even though for nearly a year I had been out on pretrial release living in another state, I made every hearing, every status call. I you know, was compliant with the probation officer that was monitoring me. But for this particular reason, because I had vacationed out of the country on numerous occasions, they felt that I was a flight risk. Although I had already surrendered my right. passport, but uh, so they took me into custody and that was the hardest thing that was on February the 15th and the day after Valentine's Shalina, why, why was your sentence so severe? 30 years. <clears throat> the judge said that he wanted to make an example of me to deter other attorneys from committing fraud. Right. And um, so he threw the book, the, book the shelf, the, <laughs> yeah, the case, everything all of it find. at me. Yeah. So and uh, I actually, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I actually didn't get um, sentenced that day. It's not like on TV. So that day they handcuffed me. They took me out to a little room and off to the side. And by this point, you know, I didn't cry until I got past the door. And then when I got there and I saw this little jail cell, I just broke all the way down. And then I looked and there's two guys sitting in the jail cell that I guess were waiting for court or had finished court. And I'm crying and my nose is running. And uh, it was not a pretty picture at all. And my hands are cuffed behind my back and I can't blow my nose. And I asked the marshal, I was like, could you uncuff me? I need to blow my nose. And he looked at me and said, no, suck it up. And if I knew who this guy was, I would find him to tell him thank you. But whoever this gentleman was that was in the cell, in his prison clothes, he told me, he said, sister, I got you. And he put his hand through the through the bars with tissue and blew my nose for me and it was not pretty and he wiped my face for me and then the other one went and wet a little tissue and they came and they patted my little face down and then they were just telling me hey 
you know, it's okay, you can do this, you, you know, just suck it up, it's going to be okay. You know, they just gave me words of encouragement, which I didn't understand at that time. But later on, when I got to reflect on it, I knew that God placed them there. Yeah. And uh, to perform such a humble act for somebody that was in such desperate need, that's when I realized even when you're at your lowest, there will always be someone there to help you. Mm. Powerful, powerful. Shalane, before we move into what was mothering like being away, I want to show a brief clip that highlights uh, you. Nia, and what that was like. For 52-year-old Shalena McFarlane, the wounds from missing her daughter Nia Cosby are still fresh. It hurts even to this day that I wasn't able to be with her. In 2005, McFarland, then an attorney, was convicted of mortgage fraud and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Cosby went to live with her grandparents. She was four years old. When she'd cry on the phone and say, Mommy, I want to see you, I mean, my heart would just break. And there are a lot of ladies that decide that they'd just rather not have the visit because it's just too hard. What did you decide? I wanted every visit that I could have because I have a 30-year sentence. And I can recall my daughter when she got a little bit older. She may have been about six, and she went up to the officer and she says, Can we take my mommy to McDonald's for just a little while? I promise we'll bring her right back. And the officer just told her, no, sweetheart, you know, we can't let her go right now. Cosby, too, has vivid memories of those visits. Whenever you go to visit, you're not allowed to, like, lay on them, like, snuggle them, cuddle them. You know, you're allowed to, like, hug and, like, hold hands across the table. That's about it. She's now 20 years old, a college sophomore studying finance, and still struggles with the moments her mother missed. I did dance, I played basketball, I did choir for many, many years, and I always wanted my mom to be able to see me do those things. I did want her to be a part of those things. But last summer, an un- Wow, wow, wow. <sighs> and you can't get back lost time. So what was that like for you mothering from a distance? And what is it like now with Nia right there? Well, even though I was away, I was still mama. Mm. So I wrote her constantly. I called constantly. I was very active uh, with you know her school. I got all of her report cards. I would get her homework. Uh, when she would get out of line, I would check that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was still mama. And right. uh, we have a wonderful relationship now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, last month, we spent an entire weekend together, just she and I. And it was amazing because we have so many similarities to not have been together. And I was able to share with her like a lot of stories and things about when she was little that she didn't really remember or fill in the dots about things. And uh, but we have a a good relationship. I think I'm as good and as good a standing with her as any parent can be with a millennial Mm. child. Mm. How long um, long was that embrace when you held her for the first time after you uh, were released? I I don't even know. It, It 
it seemed like it lasted an eternity. Uh, we just cried. We cried. And, and then she she drove. So when I left, she was driving her Barbie car. And now she's driving the, the Honda. And, uh, you know, she's singing and dancing. And I'm like, don't you need to keep both hands on the wheel? And, a mother, uh, a mother, a mother. Right? And she's like, Ma, I got it. I got it. And uh, but she's just really an amazing person. Um, I was blessed that my parents raised her. So I knew exactly the type of upbringing that she was receiving. I knew the home that she was being raised in. I knew the people that she was being around. And for that, I'm really blessed because I served time with a lot of women who didn't even know where their kids were mm. or their kids were being abused or molested. And there wasn't anything they could do about it. And uh, so I am just so thankful that I didn't have to experience any of that. And um, my my daughter, you know, it wasn't always smooth. We had some issues sometimes when she came yeah. to see me and uh, with the guards and different things and, and them being disrespected. But um, it's just something that as a family, you pull through. And you guys pull through in a significant way. This is so compelling. Before I go on, another question in the chat room. It says, what an awesome story, overcoming obstacles and not relishing in your past mistakes. Thank you for that comment. The question, Shalena, is what is it about you that made you not quit and stop fighting for your life at any time while facing this painful experience? But what is it about you? How are you wired and said, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop fighting during, during this time. It, it's not like I made some, you know, heroic decision <laughs> to just decide that I'm going to, oh, here's this obstacle and I'm just going to overcome it. No, I mean, it's as simple as when they took me into county jail that first night and I went to sleep and I was just determined that I'm, I'm just not getting up. I don't, I'm not getting up. I'm just not. And then eventually I got hungry and I got up. <laughs> um, so you can blame it on my stomach. Um, you just, you, it's fine to grieve. It's fine to have periods where you're down, but you just can't stay there. I mean, life with me, um, now is not perfect. You know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns and sunshine every day. I have difficult times. I have, uh, people that are mean to me, uh, you know, that, that, you know, say horrible things. Social media is brutal, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes, and then I is. thought about it and I said, you know what, if I don't read these stupid comments then I mm -hmm. won't get upset. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, take it on the chin and keep moving. But, you know, people are, are, um, are resilient. And so you, you just have to realize that, you know, you may fall, but you can bounce and, and get back Ooh. on. Hashtag, hashtag bounce, bounce back. Uh, Selena, when you, when you, Shalena, when you were away, was there a routine or regimen? Was it a typical day or was every day different? And how did that experience play a role in what you're doing now? Because I want to move into talking about what you're doing now because you're doing phenomenal things. Well, prison is structured. Uh, they tell you what time to get up, what to wear how to make your bed, how to keep things in your cubicle. Uh, you, you don't have a lot of decisions. 
that you get to make. Um, it's designed to bring you uh, in line with what they consider to be mainstream views. And so uh, every day was, was the same in some ways and every day was different because people make things different. Mm. And uh, you learn to uh, appreciate and experience people from all different types of diverse backgrounds and upbringings. And you learn tolerance, you learn patience. And uh, I, 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 people wouldn't understand if I say that prison wasn't a bad experience for me, but any experience is what you make out of it. And so uh, I took some classes, I taught a lot of classes, and I participated in a lot of different activities. Uh, we did a lot of the women when I was at Tallahassee, we raised like almost $5,000 for the um, breast cancer uh, organization, wow. which I won't name. Mm -hmm. And um, we did this by donating money that we earned and mind you, a lot of the women only make 12 cents an hour. So if they were to donate $5, that really is significant. But we had 1200 women there and we raised almost $5,000 and the organization wouldn't even come pick up the check, you know, because, wow. and so, but, we, but it didn't stop the fact that we gave from our hearts. We did uh, angel tree toy drives. We did, you know, lots of things because the thing about it, is that redemption comes from getting outside of yourself and your own personal struggles. Mm, mm, mm. So you were busy. Yes. And it was preparing you for what you're doing today. There's a comment in the chat room that says, thank goodness for having a strong support system. As the saying goes, it takes a village. So you had the village on the outside. You were creating a village while you were away, a village that went out of their way to provide and to give. What does today look like for you? What's what's happening? From what I understand, you're working on a book. You are you're you're being an advocate with regard to criminal reform. Talk to us about what's happening today. Well, I'm writing a book. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Collateral Consequences, and it's Ooh. going to talk about uh, my 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 prison journey and the things that I experience within the system that I think people need to know uh, there's a fascination in America now about criminal justice and uh, people see shows like the orange is the new black and yeah. you know they and uh, there's some truth to it but there's also a very uh, dark and sobering side to the criminal justice system and that's what I want to talk about I want to talk about how your tax dollars are being wasted uh, you have people that uh you know, prison is a waste of time. You have people that work maybe four days, four hours a day, and they sleep the rest of the time. Uh, once you get your GD, there's really nothing else for you to do. You can't go to college in the federal system unless your family can't afford to pay tuition. Uh, you can work, you can earn a trade, but the the certifications are aren't aren't real ones in many cases. So. You can get the experience, but you're not going to get an actual uh, vocational trade certification these days. And so 
it, it's pointless. It's like you're taking care of grown people. They, we sit around, we play cards and games all day. We do puzzles. We watch probably more TV than any of you all in the real world. Right. And why? When we could be home raising our children, working um, and gaining skills that can actually make us a better person. So one of the things that you know I've dedicated myself to is doing advocacy work where I try to make conditions better for the women inside and bring as many home as possible. How, how challenging is it right now in the midst of writing that book and reliving some of the things you're talking about right now? Um, I can only imagine that you don't um, it's marinate actually, or don't flashback or... No, actually it's therapeutic in a lot of ways because when you're going through a situation, you have a different perspective than when you look back at it later. And uh, so as I'm writing, it's actually a healing process for me in, in, in many ways. Do you find yourself now in situations like this where you are doing more speaking and talking and as you're doing your advocacy or as you move toward being, being a speaker? Yes, I talk about criminal justice reform and advocacy anywhere. Uh, I, if I if we're in the grocery store and I get stuck in line and I figure I can figure out some kind of way to tell you about it. It's just about, about bringing awareness to people that the face of the quote unquote inmate or uh, judicial impacted or all these great terms that they have for us now returning citizens and all of these different, we don't care what you call us. We just want to come home. And right. so there are a lot of people that are making policy in relation to um, criminal justice reform that have good hearts and good intent, but they've never asked us what we need. They've never spent time in prison. So they don't know that, yes, you have all this beautiful things on paper with a big red bow on it, and it's not effective. And so I get to be that person that talks to them mm about, um, hey, this is really what we need. This is how sure. this needs to go sure. practically. Now, you were granted clemency. And one of the reasons why you were released was because of your health. Uh, tell us about others who might have to go back because of a bill not being signed. Okay. So I was released under the CARES Act uh, COVID release, which means that if you have medical conditions or if you're elderly and you've done a significant portion of your time, then they will transfer you to home confinement. And while you're on home confinement, you wear an ankle monitor and you are under the purview of either probation or the halfway house and they monitor you. So when I first came home, I had to check in several times a day. I couldn't go anywhere. I was on home confinement, which was fine because it's in the age of COVID, no one was going anywhere. Right. So while everyone else was complaining about being stuck in the house, I'm happy to be home. So, um, and then I, you know. Perspective, it, perspective, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, uh then in January, on President Trump's last day in office, he granted me executive clemency, which means that that terminated my sentence. So I did not, my sentence is over. So I had served almost a year on, uh, well, six months on home confinement. And uh, 
So that would have put me at year 16. February would have been the 16th year and I got clemency on the 21st of January. And that ended that portion. Uh, however, I still have five years probation. I still have to answer to my probation officer. I still have to pay $11 million in restitution, uh, which has now snowballed to 15 million, I think it is, uh, due to, due to uh, interest. And as a result, it's, a, it's considered a judgment against me. So I can't buy a home. I can't really have any assets. Uh, because they'll levy them. So mm. my sentence in some ways is over and in some ways it's still continuing. And that is something else that I'm advocating about, which are the collateral consequences of your sentence. It's not enough that I have to say that I'm a felon for the rest of my life, but I also now have to pay money that I didn't take uh, that I'll never be able to pay off in my lifetime. Wow. Wow. And, and you said that there's a possibility unless this this bill is signed that others might have to go back to right. prison once the pandemic or once the situation is resolved is over. The Trump administration issued a memo that said that once the pandemic was over, that those on home confinement would be returned to prison. So I would have been one of those people uh, because I had 11 years left on my sentence. And uh, it's horrible because just imagine you come home with your family, you've bonded again with your children, you've gotten a job, you're working, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. And then one day with the stroke of a pen, they say that the pandemic's over and now you have to go turn yourself back in. It's pointless. It makes no sense. It's cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, there are a lot of uh, advocacy organizations that are lobbying the Biden administration at this point to um, reverse this uh, memo. And it can be done with the stroke of a pen. Stroke of a pen. You are getting some love in this chat room. Let's read this one. It says, you don't seem to be bitter or playing a victim. How have you managed to seemingly have a very healthy mindset? <laughs> A no vocabulary or you said prayer prayer prayer, <laughs> prayer changes things <laughs> it, it certainly does someone else said thank you for sharing your story your resilience is god's grace yes absolutely so his else grace said, and mercy uh it's nothing that i've done it's nothing that i deserve uh but i am just so so grateful hmm. When people see me and say, hey, how you doing? I always say, I woke up. <laughs> I woke up. You know, anything else is, you know, unmatchable to that. We, we take that for granted. And they say you don't miss your water until your well runs dry. So I guess when you don't have that well, the miss is, 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 is taken. You realize what you don't have. You certainly realize it. Key thought here says, person said, I will remember as I serve on boards, ask those involved what they want, what they really need, what they really want. Yeah. So Shalane, as we think about tomorrow, next week, next year, because what a difference a year makes, what are your thoughts? What are, what's, in your, what's on your vision board with regard to your, your daughter, uh, your life, your speaking, your book. I, I hope there's going to be a movie 
Well, what's on your vision board for what's next? Well, the, one of the things that I'm most looking forward to is attending one of my daughter's graduations for the oh. first time. So I missed kindergarten. I missed eighth grade. I missed high school. And, uh, but I will not under wow. any circumstances miss college. And uh, they can make that little speech all they want to about don't cheer until everybody comes across the stage, but I'm gonna be that one that will be- You're gonna be loud, you're gonna be loud. I'll be loud. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I am, um, I'm open. I, I, I don't know. What I do is each morning I wake up and I, as I pray and meditate, I ask God to order my steps. And so I, pray that this year will just be a year of me continuing to listen to the call that he has on my life, uh, a, a year of serving, because I found that I'm happiest when I'm serving. Uh, it's, it's not about me. It's not about material possessions. It's not about um, acquisitions. Uh, it's, it's just about showing God's love and his, his being a living example of mercy and of how you can fail at things in your life and still come back. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just receptive. Wide open. Wide open. How long did it take for you to find your rhythm when you came back home? Oh was, there, was there a have time? I, that... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so much had changed 15 years. I am so technology challenged. It is <laughs> unbelievable. I text my daughter constantly. Hey, how do you, how do you do this? Or I, YouTube is my best friend. YouTube uh, University. YouTube and Google, uh, everything. You know, I, uh, I borrowed a friend's truck to move some items out of storage and I wanted to fill the gas tank up. And I sat there for the longest searching all around for the the uh, the lever for the, the, <laughs> yes. the gas cap. Yes. And I and finally I said YouTube. So I go and I and, and it turns out it doesn't even have a lever. You just go push it and it pops open. But it's like technology uh, over a 16 year gap is it's like being on Mars. And uh, that is one of the major failings of the uh, prison system in that mm. you people in prison are still typing letters on typewriters. Uh, you, we, we listen to music uh, on MP3 players and we thought that was something, you know, phenomenal. Uh, some state facilities have iPads and things like that, but the federal system does not. And uh, it's a disservice because when you leave out, they give you, you go to resume classes, they, they give you paper resumes that have been typed and you have your two little copies of resumes and you've taken all these classes on how to uh, fill out applications. And then you get there and they tell you, you have to upload your resume. And you're like, well, what, what, do you, what do you talk, upload mm. what? How do you do that? Mm. Uh, what if I can't afford a laptop? What if I can't afford a smartphone? What happens then? And uh, you, you, it is like, really being on another planet sometimes. And the other thing that was the strangest thing to me was people talking to themselves all the time, or at least that's what I perceived it to be uh, until I realized they have the earbuds in. Yes, earbuds, um, yeah. But it was just weird because I'm in the grocery store and this guy's like, yeah, you know, uh, 
something about tomatoes. And I'm like, what? And he's like, what? What? I'm not talking to you. And I said, well, you said the thing about the tomatoes. <laughs> and uh, that's when he says, I'm on the phone. And I said, oh, OK. Or how people are at dinner or, you know, out with their families and everybody's on their phone. Nobody's talking. And that's strange to me. And so, you know, I, when my daughter comes, we have a no phone rule. We put them down. We will go check them. But, <laughs> um, you know, we, I, it, you have to communicate as it's important. And so uh, that is the biggest thing, how people are so caught up in social media that they fail to, you know, really work on their humanity. Yeah. And we take it for granted. Shalina, were the people um, who played a role in your going away, were they ever brought to justice? Uh, yes, they all, uh, we, there were, nearly all of us went to prison. They went for a lot less than I did. Most of them went for anywhere from a few months to, I think the, uh, the next highest was seven years. And they were far more culpable than I was, but they uh, struck deals with the government and they testified against me at my trial. So they got further reductions. And I have not uh, run into any of them yet. Uh, in my heart of hearts, I know I've forgiven them for the lies that they told and the harm that they caused. Uh, but I don't exactly know how my flesh is gonna react the first time I run into one of them. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm not going to do like on Ratchet TV and fight or anything, but I, I just don't know how I'll feel about that. Um, so that, I'm you know, sure that's just correct. something. Yeah. Another another uh, comment came in. Uh, actually, it's a question. Did you regain your personal key relationships, families, friends, et cetera, to continue to have that support system that you have? Well, I don't know that I regained them. I don't think I ever lost them. My, my key support people stayed with me um, because one of the things is that um, people in prison, you have a lot of time and you have time to write your family members and mm. your friends. And it's not all about them catering to you. You have to reach out to them because they're far more busy than you are. And so I was one of those people, if it was your birthday, your anniversary, you were going to get a card from me. It was probably going to be a handmade card because I took card making. And uh, <laughs> so actually, when I, went to visit, Hallmark, huh? <laughs> <laughs> when I went to some friends that I've seen since I've been out, they actually have their little cards still. They pulled them out and showed Ooh. me. I was like, oh, OK. But yeah, it's a two way street. And so people think for, for that when you go to prison that it, you're cut off from everyone. No, you're only cut off if you choose to be cut off. Mm. And so I maintain those relationships um, as much as I could. And since I've been home, you know, I've been able to FaceTime and uh, visit a few people. And uh, look at you, FaceTime. Okay, you got that technology going now. Yeah. <laughs> Shalena, I'm going to uh, take you to the part of the show that we usually save toward the end. We call it the mini, M-I-N-I, -I, the mini keynote. Since I'm a speaker, I speak for a living. I'm always giving presentations at conferences and organizations. So for the people who come on, I give them an opportunity to make a 30-second keynote address where they look right at the camera and words of encouragement, words of wisdom, empowerment, you sharing your truth, 
calls to action is your call. And I know you are working on being a speaker. So here's an opportunity to do what could be your first keynote. I don't know, but look at that camera from the heart, 30 seconds, talk to the audience, give them some words to consider, words to think about. Okay. Um, I think I wanna direct this towards the children of incarcerated parents. I would say to anyone that's viewing this program today, get involved. Um, the kids don't understand in a lot of ways what's going on. The grandparents can be overwhelmed. Uh, if we all come together as a village, like someone said in the chat, uh, we can raise these kids and they will not be lost souls because the, uh, the pipeline to prison is very real. Uh, by taking fathers out of the home, by taking the mothers away, you have really, you have orphans. And so I think as a community, it's very important for us to uh, get involved. And you may say, well, I don't know anyone whose uh, child is, you know, or whose parent is locked up. Well, find them. You know, you there are organizations, there are groups, uh, there are churches. Uh, donate if you have children that have clothes, and they're, you know, they're they're too small. They've just decided they want another style. There is probably some child that is dying for uh, for some clothes. So when we look at that, you know, I think it's important that we don't forget about the children because when a judge sentences a mother in particular, he sentences those children too. Mm. And uh, even if you were to help donate money to help a family be able to go visit the mother, um, a couple of hundred dollars. So instead of maybe buying that new pair of shoes or that new uh, purse uh, or green fees, if you're, go if you're a golfer, uh, if you donated that money to a family so that they could be able to have gas and sandwiches for that day to be able to go visit their incarcerated person, because it does cost, I think that would be um, a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Shalena, wow, your blessing. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story in such a profound way. Thank you for not being a victim, being a victor. Thank you for uh, the words, the examples, the stories you shared. This hour flew by, so thank you very much. For those of you who are, are watching, think about some of the thoughts that Shalana shared. I mean, we, in this pandemic, talking about we can't wait till we get out. And Shalana says, I'm glad to be home. Think about the many things we take for granted, breathing, walking, talking, the roof over our head, the water that comes through our pipes. Where's your focus on what you have or what, on what you don't have? You know, I say all the time, what you focus on grows. And Shalana has shared with us today that she's focusing on living living out loud, making every moment and every minute matter. <laughs> what a story. Again, thank you for uh, joining in. We'll see you again next week. And like I always said, I'll always say, you've just been gym-packed.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.